0: On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Three Musketeers listener polls and preview Philip Van Dorn Stern's The Greatest Gift and its film adaptation, It's A Wonderful Life. Hello and welcome back to another episode of This Film Is Lit, prequel episode of This Film Is Lit. We're talking about movies that are based on books. We, I have so many notes in the movie section that we don't even have a learning thing segment this week. Yeah. I, <laughs> I started finding notes, and everything was just really interesting. So I just kept putting stuff and I was like, I have to stop eventually. <laughs> like four pages of movie notes. So uh we don't have a learning segment, but we're just gonna get right into it because we still have a ton of stuff to talk about. Let's get into it with our patron shout-outs.
1: I put up with you because your
0: father and mother were our finest patrons. That's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy award winners, and they are Matilde, Steve from Arizona. Paul Katinsminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Grey High Tower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch. Shelby says all I want for Christmas is TFA IL merch. That darn skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much. Appreciate you all. Shelby, sorry we don't have merch. <laughs> I, I can't promise anything. I will say this. We have been discussing, we have discussed, and this may be a thing in the new year that we pursue with more veracity, Um, doing a slight redesign on... Yeah,
1: just uh, a, a more interesting logo. Yeah,
0: I designed that original logo in a matter of a couple hours, and I am no designer. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I I can get by, but I am not. I am hardly a designer, but we we know quite a few um and we've we we've been in discussing having uh some of our branding stuff kind of reworked and if we do that uh, or sorry not if when we do that um that would be a time that we would potentially do some TFIL merch and you know maybe we could have a throwback if you wanted the original logo but i'm the 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 goal would be that we're going to get a more interesting yeah. <laughs> visually interesting mm-hmm. logo uh that would make for better merch so hold out and hopefully One day here soon, that will come true. All right, Katie, let's find out what people had to say about the three musketeers.
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, On Patreon, we had zero votes for the book, which surprised me. Uh, Three for the movie, and then two listeners who couldn't decide. Steve from Arizona said, I will always love and support this stupid movie, regardless of what people think of me or how I comport myself when it comes to my snooty modern film takes. This version is obviously the best version to come out in decades. It's fun as hell, has a tremendous cast with the exception of Chris O'Donnell, and is simple and convoluted enough for multiple generations to enjoy. This is one of the few few movies I watched in a theater growing up considering I was part of a large Catholic family where video rental nights were the norm and having to watch kids' movies was typical. So yeah, Bodice's silly action and goofy humor really pleased me as I drank a movie theater soda with red vines and my own bag of popcorn. Nostalgia clouds the mind, but this is good nostalgia in my opinion. Plus, watching three women I still think are gorgeous in Rebecca De Mornay, Julie Delpy, and Gabrielle Anwar still proves 13-year-old me has good taste in women. I will admit I have seen other versions of Dumas' work in the 2001 John wu inspired atrocity that was Musketeer, as well as the 2023 trailer for the film, which looks like they shot the dang film with 50% aperture on the lens. This version will always hold a place in my heart. It represented a sillier, more fun time of filmmaking before the ultra-serious 90s took over. I liked most of the actors in the film, and I'm still perplexed by the fact Oliver Platt didn't become a bigger name. He literally stole every scene he was in. And even though I'm a pretentious metalhead slash music snob, I love All for Love. What a perfect amalgamation of the 80s and 90s wedding song scene.
0: It does very, yeah. Yeah, that's Love a, is a, a good description of that song. Eighties, <laughs> nineties wedding ballad for sure. Um, uh, I I actually so I I I know I dumped on Chris O'Donnell a little bit. I thought he was fine. Rewatching it, I thought he was fine in this movie. Not amazing or anything.
1: But he he does what he needs to. He do, does what though. he needs
0: to do. I thought he was serviceable. Again, I, I somebody <laughs> else maybe would have been better for sure. It wasn't. I didn't particularly like you know. Uh, again, he was probably the weakest of. Eh, maybe Charlie Sheen. I would argue. Is well,
1: like, Charlie the Sheen. I think but the, his character the problem, is also the problem with Charlie Sheen is that now he's just kind of a distraction. Yeah, like he's just Charlie Sheen right. randomly in a Three Musketeers movie. Right. Whereas watching it in, at the time, at the you know, time yeah. which maybe yeah, I, I mean, at been the time, that big of a
0: deal. Yeah, when I saw it at the time as a kid, you know, I enjoyed this movie when I was younger. Um, so yeah, I, I get that. Um, that being said, I don't think he's particularly doing anything.
1: Yeah. Interesting yeah. Like again
0: But also his character's kind of The least interesting um, But I, I, That being said Like I said I thought Chris O'Donnell Was fine Like I didn't think It was just Like bad Particularly bad uh, Like he is in Maybe like some of the Batman movies and stuff Where you're just like Ugh But those movies Are just Bad in general A couple things the I thought the trailer For the 2023 film Looks great I, I get that it's a little dark But you know Modern Cinematography has changed Where I uh, I don't think it's that dark I mean it's definitely darker than this movie But they're also doing a much more serious take mm-hmm. on At least the trailer is much darker than this movie is But it's not a, a light hearted kids action romp It is a more serious dramatic film Which again maybe doesn't necessarily Mesh with what the original book is From the sounds of what you said With it being a little bit more of a silly
1: Yeah it's, satirical it's kind silly of and, thing. and fun
0: um, But anyways uh I still think it looks really good and interesting and you know that whatever um I will say I obviously there are trends and I I think it's I get what you're saying when you said it represented a sillier more fun time of filmmaking before the ultra serious 90s took over I I guess I get like again I guess I kind of there is a there's definitely a cynicism and a um yeah, a cynicism to to the '90s that I think is more apparent in maybe television than film, but all, all across media, there was a cynicism in the '90s that definitely kind of colored a lot of stuff. That being said, there's still plenty of, I, and I guess this is a, this is a problem I always have with, with kind of sweeping statements like that. Is just like there's plenty of like goofy, weird, silly movies yeah. in the '90s. <laughs> like like tons of them i don't like there's like george of the jungle like with Brennan fraser came out in like 97 or something like that i think Uh, obviously the mummy came out in i think Mm -hmm. it was like 99 so you know right at the end there's all kinds of movies that are very similar to this that came out but that being said i think i get what you're saying there's a wider overall the 90s had again a more cynical kind of take on the direction of film um I would agree that I, it is kind of perplexing that Oliver Platt didn't get bigger. That He's been in lots of stuff. It's not like he's not, you know, mm-hmm. a, a big actor, but he never blew up in the way that you might expect because, again, he steals every scene that he's in in this movie, Um, like you said. uh, And, yeah, I, I think that was all the things. I, I don't know if I've ever seen the John Woo version. It sounds familiar once you mentioned it, but I don't I, I can't recall. I cannot recall I've if I've ever seen never it.
1: I've definitely
0: never seen it. So, Anyways. <laughs> but yeah, no, it it, it, it kind of sounds a little bit like to you this movie is what The Mummy was to me. Mm-hmm. Or to, you know, that hits you right in that perfect age range where it was very formative and uh, you love it because yeah. of
1: it. And that's okay. I mean, yeah. I, nostalgia is a perfectly valid reason to love a movie and to prefer a movie to a book. Yeah,
0: Absolutely.
1: Our next comment was from Bridget of Hestia, who said, My love of classics conflicts with my love of that particular brand of 90s film where every actor seems to be encouraged to chew on the scenery just a little as a treat. Can't decide. <laughs>
0: That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Because you're you're not wrong. Everybody is just doing whatever they
1: want. The actors can chew the scenery a little a as a treat. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Charlene said, I didn't rewatch this recently, so my memories are from a time when silly fun was all I really needed to enjoy a movie. Also, I have so much nostalgic fondness for All for Love. Yes. (laughs) And if I recall correctly, the whole incorporate the end credits ballad into the score thing is something else they borrowed from The Princess Bride.
0: I would have to think back to what the... Well to be fair, I also don't know what direction that this, this yeah, went. That's it's true. It's very possible I, it's, that, they, yeah, did that, the that they did the score and then, and then they gave it to Brian yeah. Adams and said, "Here, turn this into a pop song." Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't I don't and it, actually that know. that could also
1: be the same for The Princess Bride. Yeah, that's what, yeah, yeah, the Princess Bride's main theme does recur throughout the the score. Um the Storybook Love.
0: Oh, yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know
1: which way yeah, that went. Yeah. I'm not went. sure
0: which direction that went. I would imagine
1: I would think the score
0: first. You would think, but it's very possible not. I don't know. It's actually really interesting. I'm going to do some looking and see if we can figure out which way that went. And It it may not always go the same direction. Sometimes it may be like, hey, Brian Adams, write us a pop song, and they use it for the score. Other times it may be, here, here's the score, turn this into a, take something from it, turn it into a pop song. I don't know.
1: Um, Yeah, definitely something else that is reminiscent of The Princess Bride. Yeah. Um, and our last comment, I will say it's very
0: funny, though, because the Princess Bride, the the storybook love song is not one that I ever think about the score. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the, the lyric version I, never I, enters I, my brain. I,
1: I love that song.
0: I'm not saying I don't <laughs> like it. When you as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I do like that. But yeah. it's not compared to all for like I remember listening to all for love. Like I had it on a CD or something when I was a kid, <laughs> like it was on a, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So like that is just different to me. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I didn't have storybook love or whatever it was called. Uh, you know, I never listened to that outside of the context of the film. Where I did listen to All for mm-hmm. Love outside of the context of the film. So.
1: All right, our last comment on Patreon was from Matilde, who said. My heart says choose the movie. My head is set on the book, so I can't decide. More
0: movie love than I was expecting. Yeah. It's interesting. The the
1: movie is, and I should have mentioned this in my uh, final verdict, the movie is far more accessible oh yeah than the book
0: yeah like and, i mean it's a disney film, by so it's a long should, shot the disney film from the early 90s and our audience is in that age range yes. where you know they are our age roughly you some probably older, some younger. watched it as a kid so and... yeah you watched it like similar to me you probably watched it you know when you were young and in a formative age so it, i i guess it shouldn't have surprised me that so mm-hmm. many people i guess i think the thing that surprised me is that for me it was one of those things where i forgot about it
1: Mm-hmm. Until
0: you literally mentioned that we were Doing it and I was like oh yeah I've seen This movie a lot when I was little It was just one of those movies where it just Wasn't in my brain anymore Um, And so I guess I was a little Surprised that so many people have that fondness For the movie but it shouldn't Have surprised me because again on rewatch rewatching It and from my memory I was like oh yeah I liked this A lot as a
1: kid mm-hmm. yeah Um, Mathilde went on to say, Rereading the 900 pages, everything takes more words to be said in (laughs) French. That is true. Um, As an adult, made me appreciate Dumas' style more than I did as a kid. The book might have some pacing issues, but it's almost never boring or tedious, and the dialogue is delicious. It's so French it hurts, with all the wine and the womanizing (laughs) and the chauvinism, but at least it's not heavy like Victor Hugo. The characters really make it work, Milady is especially fascinating to read. I love an unrepentant and merciless villain. But I did have more problems with our heroes this time around. It's funny that what seems to have remained in the Musketeer, uh, from the musketeers in general culture is honor and virtue when there is little examples of those qualities in the text. They're greedy, quick to anger, or hypocritical. And while I love flawed protagonists, I don't think they are perceived as such now as they should. I think the movie is a lot of harmless fun, with an impeccable cast, yes, even Chris O'Donnell, he plays the dumbass like no other, and of course, fantastic music. There was potential for an objectively better movie. The scenes between Athos and Milady in, part- in particular tell me as much. It probably would have made an excellent movie if it hadn't had to be Disneyified. I would have liked to see the original script with the same cast and crew done with more, with more freedom and a bigger budget. I bet it'd be a classic then, and not just a guilty pleasure. The upcoming adaptation will be a two part: one hmm. focusing on D'Artagnan and the second one on Milady, um, which, by the way, kind of follows. Is the that how the book? Yeah, the second half. Of, I mean, D'Artagnan is still like the main character, but right. the second half is much more focused Interesting. on Milady. <laughs> Um, we might finally have a movie that will take into account the chapters from her perspective and a deeper exploration of her character. That being said, it looks like it will be another gritty and serious action movie. Why do they insist on removing all the fun and levity from the original story, which is the best part? Until they make The Muppet Musketeers, which will inevitably be the best version, like The Muppet Christmas Carol, I'll maintain that the 93 movie is the closest to the book, at least in spirit and energy, if not in execution. Wow, there you go. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good assessment. It. All, yeah. A lot of
0: it fell in line with a lot of stuff you said. Yeah. you know, during the during the course of the episode, um, and I did just double check. It is Ava Green that is playing Milady mm, the Winter, which I yeah. I am here for. <laughs> Ava Green fan, um, but yeah, I uh, and then the D'Artagnan is somebody I've never heard of, a French mm-hmm. actor named Francois Civil.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think what is interesting about trying to adapt this book is that it kind of falls into a space which doesn't really exist in modern media anymore, which is like fun, lighthearted, like actiony romp that is also adult material. Because, hmm. like, the closest thing that I can think of is, like, a straight-up comedy. But it's not a comedy.
0: Yeah. Hmm. I was just I was trying to think of other, like, potential modern examples that would fall into that. Um,
1: because I because I think the reason that a lot of people want to adapt it as... Like a comedy. as, as Well, as, like, a kid's yeah. movie or right. whatever is because it is so... Like, it's silly and it's fun and it's got, like, people doing sword fights right. and, like, stuff that we as, a, like, a modern audience would typically associate with a kid's movie. Or at
0: least, yeah, like, a younger audience. But yeah.
1: then you have to completely change the story because the actual story is quite adult.
0: Yeah, and about, like, political... Yeah. And, yeah, and,
1: like, affairs and womanizing and getting yeah, drunk
0: yeah that's interesting I, I i yeah i don't know if there is a I, I mean i'm sure there is i'm just not i'm just blanking on it i'm sure i'll think of one later but
1: it's just it's kind of a space that we don't really tell stories in anymore i feel like
0: i guess i feel like the i'm not saying i disagree i feel like there is there are there are, that that we do. <laughs> I feel like we do. And there are examples of it. Um, Maybe it's arguably less less common. But I I don't know. I don't think I, I I will say I can't think of any straight up like obvious examples Um, off the top of my head. I mean, I think you could argue the Princess Bride kind of does that.
1: Yeah. I, well, I think the closest I mean, is, the Princess
0: Bride is about like is murdering like... his wife to start a war with. Another I was co- going to you know. say, I
1: think the closest thing is like the action adventure comedy. Yeah, but again, we're not really making those anymore. Uh,
0: they're not the well. I mean, they've been replaced by Marvel films, yeah, you know, or superhero films, which I would argue have some of them have some, not all of them by any stretch, not even most of them probably, um, but there are some that have heavier, you know elements that would be similar but it's definitely different yeah i don't know it's interesting something to think about but yeah
1: all right uh over on facebook we had two votes for the book and two for the movie adam said i've got to give it to the book dumas writing is great in a quippy 19th century pop culture way I also appreciate its adult-targeted story and how aggressively French it is, which none of the adaptations seem to capture, since they tend to bend so hard towards a complete rewrite for younger audiences, although I'm always glad to lose the casual racism that often comes with old books. Movie versions of The Three Musketeers getting targeted at kids never made sense to me any more than if they decided to make a kid's version of The Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, it's like when you look at it at surface level, it it doesn't really make sense to keep adapting this one for kids. Yeah. I I'm like sure. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: I mean, so this is not a kids movie. I guess But I I had one pop into my head that it's not a kids movie by any stretch. It's rated R and lots of the humor and stuff and it is very much mature. But it is a like a fun, silly movie that has very heavy themes. That I would kind of is an action adventure mixed with salsa sci-fi, which is everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. And now, obviously, that's very different than. Yeah. It's not as wide of an audience film for sure. It's not like you know you're not taking your ten year old or whatever to mm-hmm. go see that film. But I don't know. I'm just always very hesitant to be like we don't make movies like that anymore because there's just I always find that that's saying, not true. Like I'm not that's always saying not that
1: it's an absolute statement that we do not make movies like that anymore. I'm saying that it does not seem to be a common thing. Like, it doesn't seem to be a common way that we tell stories right now. Yeah, okay. And I, and, I would, that's fair. and I would say that everything, everywhere, all at once, part of the reason that it got a lot of attention was because it felt like it was breaking the mold yeah. of the yeah. way that we're telling stories right now.
0: No, and that, that, that yeah, that's totally fair. That's totally true.
1: Um, Andy said, growing up a Gen X kid in the UK, the Three Musketeers was a big cultural staple. The Richard Lester films were hugely popular, with the most stacked cast imaginable at the time, and Dumas was a mainstay on reading lists. The novel is actually frustrating to me, the over-present narrator just can't get out of the way of the great story, but I vote for the book because the 90s films feel so lazy to me. Where the novel's best moments have the musketeers arriving at sweeping historical moments like the siege— The film can be best summed up by Paul McGann shouting D'Artagnan in in his high-pitched bop voice. Bah humbug. Merry Christmas, everyone. That's fair. I gave it my best shot. Uh,
0: Did you know that guy, uh, Paul McGann? So I didn't mention this in the episode or the prequel, but I I, I was aware of it. I just didn't bring it up. Uh, But Paul McGann uh, was the eighth doctor. Was he? Yeah. Uh, That's in
1: classic a, Doctor Who, right?
0: It, well, I think it's like a the, weird He was in, I think it was just like a one-off Film from the 80s
1: Because uh, I've never watched That was like the Who? last
0: gasp before It wasn't like, I don't think he was part of the TV series from mm-hmm. the classic Who I think it was like a, a TV movie That they made in like the 80s or 90s it Might have been the 90s And it was, like, the last thing Doctor Who before...
1: Before I got, like, rebooted. The last
0: TV show slash movie, there might have been, like, you know, radio plays and stuff. But the last, like, yeah, official, like, BBC TV Mm -hmm. or movie before New Who in 2005 or whatever. Mm. Um, But, yeah, he was the eighth
1: Doctor. Interesting. Our last comment on Facebook was from Crystal, who said, Hard to pick. Everything in me knows that the book is technically better than the movie. I read it once for school and had no desire to reread it for this. It's seven hundred pages. Yeah. I can't. Was that blame the only me.
0: thing you read all semester? Like that's <laughs> such a large book to assign yeah. for a a, school, a class. I feel like, but
1: <laughs> the movie on the other hand is a nostalgic favorite that I love to rewatch, flaws and all. By the way, I would pay all the money to see the cast of What We Do in the Shadows do a remake of this movie. I'm
0: glad everyone agrees <laughs> that or the Muppets that and the Muppets yeah
1: (laughs) on Twitter we had four votes for the book one for the movie and three listeners who couldn't decide and our only comment was from Kelly Napier who said I didn't rewatch the movie I saw it forever ago in the theaters and I've never read the book I'm only here to endorse a Muppet version of this book (laughs) Kermit Fozzie and Rolf with Gonzo as D'Artagnan. <laughs> there you go. And I think that's perfect, honestly. Yeah, yeah,
0: for the Musketeers themselves. Yeah, yeah I think that makes a lot of sense. Um,
1: Kermit Athos, yeah, obviously. Gotta be. And then yeah. like the romantic backstory with Miss Piggy yeah, as Milady. Yeah, perfect. Makes a lot of it makes sense. Perfect sense. Uh, Fozzie Porthos, yeah. clearly. Rolf Aramis. Yeah. It all works. It all works. Over on Instagram, we had six votes for the book, three for the movie, and one undecided vote. Uh, An anal fracture 42 said, I did not read the book. However, I didn't like the movie that much. (laughs) So it's a draw for me.
0: Fair enough. Like I said, I I enjoy the movie, but it's not um, like great. It's not like, uh, uh, you know, compared to something like The Mummy or Princess Bride. I I enjoyed
1: it. I enjoyed watching it. It was fun. But I do think that in order to enjoy it to the point of, like, the way that some other people yeah. seem to have enjoyed it, I need to have that nostalgia. Yeah. Like, I ne- I needed to have seen it as a child.
0: And I even had some of that nostalgia, and I still, you know, it, and I'm not saying other people would put it on that same level, but, you know, comparing it to something like The Mummy, mm-hmm. uh, The Princess Bride, or even um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, the first one, I don't think it's anywhere near the same tier,
1: yeah it's not as, as memorable those, as
0: being as memorable as fun mm-hmm. as as just like bombastic as all of those yeah it's it's just not quite on the same level in a way that i think it, it's like on this a lower tier um while still being enjoyable like i said and I, and I came to it with some of that nostalgia um but yeah so i i get if you don't have any of that nostalgia being like Meh,
1: that's yeah. fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, so our listener poll's winner was the book with 12 votes to the movie's nine plus six listeners who couldn't decide, which might be our most undecided listeners ever. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe.
0: Or at least proportionally. Yeah. Maybe not raw numbers, but yeah, proportionally, I think probably fairly close because that, yeah, that's a pretty even split across the board, honestly, with the book edging out a narrow victory speaking of books (laughs) we're going to learn a little bit about the greatest gift
1: well who are you i told you george i'm your guardian angel what is it you want mary you you want the moon just say the word and i'll throw a lasso around and pull it down welcome home mr bailey Sand a Mendel, Hogwarts. I wish I had a million dollars. All right. I just have a couple things here. There's not a ton of uh, fun facts about this. <laughs> Don't one. worry. I'm making up for it. <laughs> uh, the Greatest Gift is a 1943 short story written by American writer, editor, and Civil War historian Philip Van Doren Stern who's got a hell of a name i was gonna say
0: when i read it earlier in the intro i was like that's a great name it's philip van doran stern anybody with four names you know they yeah
1: um according to the wikipedia article he loosely based it on a christmas carol i mean yeah that uh, that seems, seems obvious <laughs> yeah i i'm i haven't read it yet so i'm curious to like read it and see like what i think exactly is getting picked up there i mean i like i i know I mean, just yeah like the themes obviously but like
0: i mean the general structure of man gets shown a world where you know he uh, at christmas time gets shown a world where he's not you know things go different is seems like by by supernatural forces feels like sure kind of I'm like just
1: saying <laughs> i am interested to see
0: yeah yeah I, yeah I, I yeah i agree I, I don't know if there's more specific places where it correlates but i can yeah. see how you would compare it generally
1: right <laughs> um so stern finished his uh 4100 word short story in 1943 he had been working on it since november of 1939 um which it's a
0: thousand words a year that's no nah, i mean nah, obviously that's not how the
1: world went. <laughs> you know what relatable content <laughs> um unable to find a publisher also relatable content um he sent 200 copies that he had printed um as a 21 page booklet to his friends as christmas presents in 1943 and, and I'm, like, I'm sure
0: they all loved I'm sure it. they recite.
1: <laughs> Great! Oh,
0: Philip sent us his manuscript for Christmas. Great! Oh, you want notes on it? Cool.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I hope some of his friends were also writers. Um, Anyway, so the story was then published as a book in December of 1944 uh, with illustrations by Raffaello Busoni. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stern also sold it to Reader's Scope magazine, which published the story in its December 1944 issue, and to the magazine Good Housekeeping, which published it under the title The Man Who Was Never Born. In it's January 1945 issue. So it's a- appeared in a couple different places. So according to the American Film Institute and Turner Classic Movies, Stern did not copyright the story until 1945, which is when he sold the film rights. Um, and I'm guessing that you probably have more notes yes, about this, this is, later. This
0: becomes a thing.
1: Yeah. Um, and he then renewed that copyright in 1971, um, the 28th year after the publication of the original December 1943 booklets. Yeah. Um.
0: And then, yeah, we will get then to then the we'll... <laughs> film rights here in a little bit. So, yeah, that's all we got about the greatest gift. It's time now to learn a little bit more about "It's a Wonderful Life." <laughs>
1: Mr. and Mrs. Martini, welcome home. This is what I wished for. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Merry Christmas! Look, Daddy, teacher says, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right.
0: It's a Wonderful Life is a 1946 film directed by Frank Capra, known for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, You Can't Take It With You, Lost Horizon, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, It Happened One Night, and Lady for a Day, among many others. It was written by married couple Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, known for, uh, they pretty much wrote together, from what I could find, almost exclusively wrote together on projects, known for The Thin Man. Easter Parade, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, uh the film adaptation I assume. Um Father of the Bride, the original well, there uh, so there's one in, in with Steve Martin in like mm-hmm. the 90s which they are credited on because it's a remake. Um but, but there they, was original in like the, the, the 50s, one. yeah. Okay. Uh The Diary of Anne Frank tv play or there was a a, they wrote the stage play Mm -hmm. of the diary of Anne frank adapted it and then there was also a tv film made from that stage play interesting Uh, and then uh, that is not an exhaustive list but um pretty prolific in the 50s and and 40s and 50s in that that era the film stars james stewart donna reed lionel barrymore a great uncle of drew Barrymore of the infamous oh. or the famous Barrymore acting mm-hmm. they're all actors yeah for forever yeah she uh, comes
1: from like a dynasty yes, of yes. acting
0: uh, and Lionel I believe I've read was her great uncle or something like that an uncle of some manner mm-hmm. um, removed quite a bit Uh Thomas Mitchell Henry Travers uh, Balua Bula Bondi Ward Bond Frank Phelan and Gloria Graham
1: I believe that's pronounced Beulah.
0: Beulah Bondi. There you go. It's
1: an old name. Yes. Not common anymore.
0: No. (laughs) The film has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, an 89 out of 100 on Metacritic, and an 8.6 out of 10 on IMDb, which puts it at number 21 on their top films list. The film was nominated for five Oscars, including for Best Picture, Best Actor for James Stewart, Best Director for Frank Capra, Best Sound, and Best Editing. It uh, did not win any of them, but it did win the Golden Globe for Best Director. The film initially opened to mixed reviews and was not a hit. In fact, it was quite a dud making $3.3 million against a budget of $3.18 million. And I had read in a part later, and I don't think I included the specific note, that one of the reports was said that it actually lost money at the box office. So I don't know Hmm. exactly where those, this was like on the little sidebar on Wikipedia where it says budget box office. But later it said it like lost $500,000. So I don't know. Um, and
1: real quick. Yes. I just wanted to look up since you said it was nominated for best picture at the Oscars. I wanted to look up what won that year. And apparently it was the lost weekend. Yeah. Which I've never heard of so I guess this one got the last laugh. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. go on. <laughs>
0: um, And later we'll explore why this film became such a classic. Spoilers, it involves complicated copyright laws, which we alluded to just a few minutes ago. In the book facts, initially, the greatest gift came to the attention of either Cary Grant or uh, RKO producer David Hempstead, who then one of the two showed it to grant's cary grant's agent again this is according to wikipedia and then in april 1944 rko bought the rights for ten thousand dollars hoping that cary grant would star in it and it would be like a big cary grant mm. vehicle basically um s- tons of people worked on drafts of scripts for this film including dalton trumbo clifford Odets, and mark Connolly. before RK- rko eventually shelved the project in Dalton Trumbo's draft, George Bailey is an idealistic politician who grows more cynical as the story progresses, and then tries to commit suicide after losing an election. Uh, the angel shows him Bedford falls not as it would be if he had never been born, but if he had gone into business instead of politics. Hmm. Uh, Dalton Trumbo <laughs> is also a very interesting guy. He's uh, there's a whole movie about him starring. Uh, uh, I can't remember his name now. The guy who died. Um, who was in Hunger Games. Uh,
1: Philip Seymour Hoffman?
0: Yes. Or Paul Giamatti. One of the two. I always get them confused.
1: <laughs> one of those two started okay, uh, right.
0: in a biopic about Trumbo, <laughs> who was, I think I might have, have a note about it later.
1: He's also got a hell of a name.
0: The film actually starred Brian Cranston. I'm not sure where I got <laughs> Paul Giamatti or Philip Seymour Hoffman from, but it definitely sold, starred Brian Cranston. So, whoops. Do I have a note about. I'm trying to remember I have a note about Trumbo later, but he was one of the people, or if I just was didn't include it and was just like, I'll remember to talk about this. Cause I do that a lot of times where I won't include a note, but I'll like <laughs> this I'll just remember and then I'm like, wait, did I include the note or did it not? Um Dalton Trumbo was one of the people uh he was one of the Hollywood 10 who was like the people um <laughs> uh during the uh um
1: the Red Scare?
0: Yes who was brought or he refused to go and and testify in front of Congress Uh. because he literally just was a communist. It was like, (laughs) fuck you. (laughs) Like, I don't, yeah. Anyway, I I might have a note about that later. If we get to, it. we get to it. So eventually RKO studio chief, uh, er, the RKO studio chief urged Frank Capra to read the greatest gift. And Capra immediately thought like, this is great and wanted to make it as his first Hollywood film after he had been making uh, back making movies again because he had made movies before but his first big re-entrance into Hollywood after he had been making films for uh, the war basically mm-hmm. like training yeah, uh, documentaries war and training, training yeah, war, war effort films and thought this would be like his one to come back and make a big big hit out of uh, and so RKO sold the Capra the rights for $10,000 and apparently threw in the three earlier scripts but according to Capra he said no actually that he paid $50,000 for the rights and the scripts doesn't really matter eventually he got the rights for it uh, but he also got the older scripts, and apparently a few of the scenes in his version are salvaged from uh, Odette's earlier screenplay. But then Capra would go on to work with several writers, including Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, who I mentioned earlier, but also Joe Swirling, Michael Wilson, and Dorothy Parker, who really? were all brought in to pot what?
1: Dorothy Parker. I don't who know. is that. A writer. She had. Um... I, I read her in, like, my lit class. Oh, okay. I was like, I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I, didn't, the name didn't ring a bell to me, so I wasn't sure. Um, but they were all brought in to polish the script, and there was a ton of drafts of the screenplay. Uh, and supp- supposedly Capra and the writers did not get along, uh, specifically Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. Goodrich called Capra, quote, that horrid man, and recalled, quote, he couldn't wait to get writing it himself, and albert said quote we told him where we were what we were going to do and he said that sounds fine <laughs> we were trying to move the story <laughs> along and work it out and then somebody told us that capra and joe swirling were working on it together and that sort of took the guts out of it. Joe Swirling was a very close friend of ours, and when we heard what he, we heard, he was doing this, we felt rather bad about it. We were getting near the end, and word came from Capra, or word came that Capra wanted to know how soon we'd be finished. So my wife said, "We're finished right now." We quickly wrote out the last scene, and we never saw him again after that. He's a very arrogant son of a bitch. <laughs> end quote.
1: <laughs>
0: Later, a dispute would ensue over the writing credits because so many people worked on it. The final screenplay, renamed by Capra, It's a Wonderful Life, instead of uh, The Greatest Gift, mm-hmm. was credited to Goodrich, Hackett, and Capra, with additional scenes credited to Joe Swirling. Capra said, quote, the, the Screenwriters Arbitration Committee decided that Hackett and Goodrich and I should get the credit for the writing. Joe Swirling hasn't talked to me since. That was five years ago, end quote. So apparently just a, a nightmare writing this thing <laughs> it turned into a big a big scene. Uh, I thought this is really interesting. So Seneca Falls, New York. Has claimed for a long time that Capra was inspired to model Bedford Falls, the setting of the film Mm -hmm. after Seneca Falls, after he visited there in 1945, the town has an annual it's a wonderful life festival every December. And in 2009, the Hotel Clarence opened in in the town named after George Bailey's guardian angel. And in 2010, It's a Wonderful Life Museum opened in the town uh, with Carolyn Grimes, who played Zuzu in the movie Cutting the Ribbon. However, film historian Janine Basinger, who curates the Frank Capra archives at Wesleyan University and wrote literally wrote the book on It's a Wonderful Life, said, quote, there's no evidence whatsoever that exists uh, for Seneca Falls claims. I have been through every piece of paper and Frank, Frank Capra's diaries, his archives, everything. There's no evidence of any sort whatsoever to support this. That doesn't mean it isn't true, but no one is ever going to prove it. <laughs> uh, and Bassinger has said that Capra always described Bedford falls as in every town. Mm. Uh, so according to the, again, the person who literally wrote the book on this movie, there's not actual concrete evidence that Bedford or Seneca falls is what Bedford was based on. but they claim it anyways because it's making that money. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that tourism.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, so getting into some uh, some casting notes here, which I thought were fun. Uh, in his autobiography, Capra said, quote, Of all actors' roles, I believe the most difficult is the role of a good Sam who doesn't know that he is a good Sam. I knew one man who could play it, James Stewart. I spoke to Lou Wasserman, the MCA agent who handled Jimmy, told him I wanted to tell Jimmy the story, Wasserman said Stewart would gladly play the part without hearing the story. Uh, the two of them had to work together. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, mm-hmm. obviously famously, uh, and at, at least one other film they'd worked together before. He was like, yes, I'll do it. Uh, so several other actresses were considered for the role of Mary, his wife, uh, but probably most famously, Ginger Rogers was considered for the role, but turned it down, uh, which eventually led to RKO borrowing. Cause this is back in the day where, actors were tied to studios yeah they had contracts with studios and basically it was a big mess um and so rko borrowed donna reed from mgm to play mary uh and rogers went on to say that she turned down the role because she found it too bland
1: i mean it's not wrong wrong.
0: but in her autobiography she would question this decision uh by asking the readers foolish you say it's like yeah i mean probably
1: probably some I don't know. You're still Ginger Rogers. Yeah,
0: you're doing all right. Um, There's a bunch of other actors considered for the role of um, Mr. Potter, but the one that I thought was most interesting was Vincent Price. which I well, thought That is was, interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a very different villain vibe yeah. than what they went with.
0: Yeah, uh, I think we have actually mentioned this 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 actor act act i don't know the word for an animal actor <laughs> before uh but when we talked about uh, what uh probably homeward bound maybe or something when we talked about animals and movies i would think
1: um i think that was babe or babe yeah one of them we talked about
0: animals and movies i believe we mentioned jimmy the raven mm-hmm. who is uncle billy's pet in this film and appeared in you can't take it with you and every subsequent capra film after that And over the course of Jimmy the Raven's career was in more than a thousand feature films from the 30s to the 50s, lived to be like 23 years old or whatever. Uh, And Jimmy received a Red Cross Gold Medal uh, in acknowledgement for over 200 hours spent entertaining veterans after World War II. Wow. Also, his footprints were enshrined in cement at a large Los Angeles pet store alongside Lassie and other Hollywood uh, animal stars.
1: I bet he loved that. All right.
0: Uh, so It's a Wonderful Life was shot at RKO uh, Radio Picture Studios in Culver City, California, uh, on their giant movie ranch in Encino. Uh, and Bedford Falls was adapted, apparently, from the Oscar-winning set originally designed uh, for the 1931 film Cimarron, which looked to be a mm. western of some sort, which is weird. I don't know. I, at least from the po- – I literally only looked at the poster when I clicked on it, and it yeah. looked like a western, but it, it to It sounds tell.
1: like a western.
0: Yeah. Um, it says a 1931 epic film, which could mean lots of things. I don't yeah. I don't know, but it, yeah. Anyways, uh, so the town covered four acres on the lot, and it consists of a main street stretching about 300 yards, which is roughly three city blocks, had 75 stores and buildings and a residential neighborhood, and then Capra would add on three uh, uh, a tree-lined center parkway, which you see in the film quite a bit, uh, a working bank set, and planted like 20 full-grown oak trees around the set Jesus. to fill things in. Also... Pigeons, cats, and dogs were allowed to roam the set to give the town
1: a lived-in feel. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet, I bet everybody loved that. Yeah, right? <laughs> I bet about half of them really loved it and half of them really hated it. Yes.
0: <laughs> so getting into the IMDb trivia facts now. So again, take these all with a grain of salt, but who knows? I'm sure these. this is one of those movies that's fairly well documented, so I'm sure a lot of this is true to some extent uh so there's a scene where donna reed mary throws a rock through a window of the Granville house and in this on the day capra had hired a sharpshooter or a rifleman to shoot out the window basically when she threw the rock but apparently donna reed has a cannon for an arm because she played baseball (laughs) in high school and she threw the rock and broke the window herself so they didn't need the person i
1: hope that one's true i know i
0: agree (laughs) Uh, There's another scene where Uncle Billy uh, leaves the Bailey home drunk and uh, you hear him stumble into some trash cans on the sidewalk. And apparently what actually happened was that during filming, a crew member dropped a bunch of tray, uh, a a bunch of props Mm -hmm. on a tray right after he went off screen. And Jimmy Stewart started laughing and Mitchell improvised, saying like, I'm all right, I'm okay." Uh, after the noise or whatever, and Frank Capra liked it so much that he left it in and then gave the stagehand a $10 bonus for, quote, improvising the sound. Uh, So uh, there's a scene where the gym floor opens up in the middle uh, of the dance or whatever to reveal a swimming pool underneath, and this was filmed at Beverly Hills High School in Beverly Hills, California. It's real, and it's still in use when this fact was written. Uh, It was in another film in 2005, or six at doing like the same thing And so it was still usable Like 55 yeah. years later Or whatever I don't know if it's that, still in this. That,
1: that gym floor that opens up and there's a pool it. One of the wildest things <laughs> yeah. I've seen Is like a six year old
0: Yeah it's pretty crazy <laughs> So uh, prior to this film The primary way of creating fake snow In film apparently Was to use cornflakes painted white And then <laughs> drop them But cornflakes when they fell were very loud so dialogue would all be adr later basically cuz you just you would have too much noise from the the cornflakes falling it also seems uh, anyways I, I don't know it this seems is, again, like
1: they're too heavy like uh, they uh, fall uh, this right
0: what it says what it says um but kapral wanted live sound he didn't want to do it all adr he wanted live uh-huh. sound on the set that they could use so they created a new snow effect and it was developed by using foamite which is a firefighter uh, firefighting ch- chemical uh-huh. soap and water Uh, And then this was pumped into a wind machine, basically, to create the fake snow, which is also very similar to how they do snow now, which is basically like foam a lot of times. Yeah,
1: they just like blow foam, right? Essentially.
0: There's different ways, but that is one of the main ways you see a lot. I I noticed it when we were watching the latest episode of um, Abbott Elementary. Mm -hmm. I was like, that looks like foam snow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, it looks, you know, it's convincing enough, but you can tell it kind of looks like foam um, and so I, I doubt they use Fomite or whatever anymore there's probably a, a Better like
1: mm-hmm.
0: less Quote unquote chemically way to do it These <laughs> days but um, Anyways they uh, they actually won an, Like an award uh, a technical like uh, An academy award for like technical Whatever mm-hmm. for inventing mm-hmm. this new Way to do fake snow in movies So getting Back to why this film became a classic As we discussed earlier The copyright stuff after Paramount bought Liberty Films, which was Capra Studio, in the 50s, the rights moved around a little bit between Paramount and then eventually uh, uh, National Telefilm Associates, NTA, bought the right or got the rights later. And then in 1974, a clerical error prevented National Telefilm Associates from renewing the copyright. When that happened, the film lapsed into public domain for a spell, and during that time, in the 70s and 80s, TV stations started playing the film like crazy. Yeah. Now, the wiki has conflicting reports on whether or not those stations had to pay royalties, with the article staying stating at the beginning that they didn't. In the opening paragraph of the w- Wikipedia article, it says that the reason it became popular is because the copyright lapsed, tv stations played it because they didn't have to pay royalties but then in the section later specifically about this part it says that the film was considered uh that because it was based on the greatest gift it was still under copyright because it was a derivative work and they basically had to pay copyright to as you kind of mentioned to to the author because it's based on the book and so I don't know what I didn't I didn't do enough reading to kind of get into the exact truth of how that all breaking down. I'm sure it's complicated. Either way, it would appear that the copyright issue led to wide television play and that that led to the film's subsequent rise in fame. And it's, you know, Mm -hmm. becoming a Christmas classic, a Christmas staple. My guess is that maybe even though they still had to pay royalties, maybe it was less than had.
1: Oh, I'm sure it you know what I mean. Less, like paying the yeah. royalties
0: for the derivative work to the author or whatever yeah. was far less than maybe if you were paying uh, Paramount or whatever, whoever mm-hmm. you know, whoever had the would have had the rights had the uh, or National Tele uh, Telefilm Associates or whatever had they had the film rights still. So it was probably cheaper or something, and so that whatever. Again, kind of conflicting reports on the Wikipedia article, but the copyright issue led to it getting a lot of TV play, which is why it became such a a big hit because. Upon its release, the film got mixed reviews. Time said, quote, It's a Wonderful Life is a pretty wonderful movie. It has only one formidable rival, Goldwyn's The Best Years of Our Lives. So this Time didn't think it was uh, The Long Weekend or The Last Weekend or whatever. But it has only one formidable rival, The Best Years of Our Lives, as Hollywood's best picture of the year. Director Capra's inventiveness, humor, and affection for human beings keeps it glowing with life and excitement. On the other hand, so that was one of the more positive reviews, on the other hand, Bosley Crowther, writing for the New York Times, uh, complimented some of the actors, including Jimmy Stewart and uh, Donna Reed. But ultimately concluded, quote, the weakness of this picture from this reviewer's point of view. Somebody should have told him you don't have to say that. Uh, <laughs> the weakness of this review in this reviewer's point of view is that you said this reviewer's point of view. <laughs> Getting back to the review. Anyways, quote. The weakness of this picture, from this reviewer's point of view, is the sentimentality of it. It's illusory concept of life. Mr. Capra's nice people are charming. His small town is, quite beguile- is a quite beguiling place, and his pattern for solving problems is most optimistic and facile. But somehow, they all resemble theatrical attitudes rather than average realities. Mm. So, basically boil down to, like, yeah, it's, it's great, but it's a little, like that's not yeah. how life
1: works <laughs> like it's like, what's interesting is i wonder you know because this came out directly post-war war, yeah if we're seeing like the kind of divide of people who wanted to look at escapism. That, like escapism and like look at the bright side yeah and versus this is like, who, and versus yeah. people who have been like disillusioned <laughs> yeah
0: i i think that's, <laughs> that could be very that could be very uh very probably what is going on here uh, so uh, I gotta get this Because this is one of my favorite notes I mentioned earlier that Trumbo Who uh, was worked or Wrote on a script or an element of the mm-hmm. script At one point the whole he was one of the Hollywood Ten who was called you know he, he, One of the people uh, McCarthy No that would have been later Wh- Whatever the the big red scare thing In the in the 50s um, Who was called before Congress and blah 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 And didn't go um, On May 26 1947 The Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI issued a memo stating, quote, with regard to the picture, it's a wonderful life redacted stated in substance that the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. In addition, Redacted stated that, in his opinion, this picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show the people who had money to show that people who had money were mean and despicable characters. End quote.
1: Uh, One, that's amazing. I love it. Two, (laughs) What is funny? The FBI was like, was, "Our our
0: assessment is this movie is based." <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is funny about that is that oh, for as capitalist as Christmas is, yeah, shitting on capitalism is also kind of a grand Christmas tradition. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. The arguably two of the most famous Christmas yeah. films of all time are literally just huge indictments of capitalism. But yeah, it's it's very funny, uh, if not more. But yeah, like two of the most yeah striking examples. It's I that cracked me up. FBI put out a statement: "Just movies, communist. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Uh, In 1990, It's a Wonderful Life was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and was selected for preservation on the National Film Registry, which should not be a surprise to anybody. And my last note, which I thought was very fun, Orson Welles, famously critical of many films, most films maybe, other than his own, and even his own to some extent, I guess, uh, played Mr. Potter in the made-for-television remake of uh, The Greatest Gift, It Happened One Christmas, and when asked by Henry Jaglam, I guess a, a, a journalist or something, what he thought of It's a Wonderful Life, Orson Welles said, quote, there's no way of hating that movie, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> Which I, I thought was interesting, because Orson Welles seems like he could hate anything, yeah, <laughs> in my opinion. For and real. From what I've seen of the man, and uh, he's a talented individual, or was, obviously. But uh, it seemed like he could find a way to hate almost anything, so I thought that was kind of fun Uh, as always you can do us a giant favor by following us on facebook twitter instagram goodreads any of those places leave us comments leave us feedback we'll read them like we just did in this episode talk about them all that good stuff also support us on patreon patreon.com slash this film is lit we really appreciate it katie where can people watch it's a wonderful life
1: Well, as always, you can check with your local library. Uh, You might want to get on that. Um, I imagine this is a popular one at this time of year. uh, Um, Although, who
0: needs to rent it? Just turn on... It's true. Oh, I say turn Um, on your TV. Nobody has (laughs) cable. Or or
1: or a local video rental store if you still have one. Um, Or if you're around our age, your parents probably have a copy of it.
0: (laughs) Or if you're... uh, if you have TV for some reason, still like actually. yeah, you can probably search it on you can cable probably and find, find it playing yeah.
1: somewhere. Um, but if nothing else, you can stream this with stream this with a and subscription uh, through Amazon Prime, Plex, or Hoopla, or you can rent it for around three to four dollars through Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, Apple TV, or AMC Theaters on demand.
0: There you go. It's a Wonderful Life. I am. I'm actually looking for because again we talked about it. I don't know if I've ever seen this movie front to back. If I do, if yeah. I have, I don't recall seeing it front to back. Um, so I'm interested to see uh, what, I, what I think of it because it's you know it's famous for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> so. for sure. We'll be talking about that in one week's time. Come back right before Christmas uh, for our episode on It's a Wonderful Life. Until that time. Guys, gals, not binary pals, and everybody else.
1: Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.